Well, good morning again, church. My name is Ike Nicholson. I'm the senior pastor here. Today is a day that no one really knows about. It's Ascension Sunday. It is the day that the church celebrates the ascension of Jesus Christ. It is, um, uh, it was actually this past Thursday, the day of ascension, and uh, we are focusing in the Word today on that moment when Jesus uh, left his disciples and ascended into heaven and took his rightful place at the right hand of God the Father. So if you have your Bibles with you, I'd like to jump into this in Acts, the book of Acts, chapter 1. Uh, as we, uh, this is the uh, passage that is most used to talk about the ascension. Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. This is written by Luke, uh, who was a physician. He actually also wrote the Gospel of Luke. Uh, Luke Acts is really a should really be one book in two parts. Uh, you probably know it as two books, that's fine. But Acts is the second letter that he's writing to a guy named Theophilus, uh, which means a lover of God, someone who loves God. So you could be Theophilus this morning, because I know that you love the Lord. Beginning in verse 1 of Acts chapter 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands to the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit." Not many days from now. So when they had come together and asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Jesus said to them, It is not for you to know times and seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Here ends the reading of this God's holy and perfect word. May God give to us his blessings and a spirit of understanding this day. Amen. Susie Dent is a scholar educated at Oxford, and she is a lexographer, somebody who studies words, specifically the English language. She's written over 12 books on the English language. It must be fascinating reading. <laughs> According to Dent, the average person uses about 2,000 different words through their lifetime, and can understand about 20,000 words through their lifetime, and, it, and can understand 40,000 words, enough to know what the words mean. 
Now, those words have been ranked by multiple dictionaries and online search engines so that we can actually see the most used words of the English language. And roughly 80% of all the words that you and I say throughout our entire lifetime numbers about 2,000. We use about 2,000 of the same words over and over and over again. The word ascension is ranked. Are you ready? It is the 18,700th most used word in the English language, which basically means it's not used that much. Now, this past Thursday, as I said earlier, was the day of ascension. It was exactly 40 days after we celebrated Resurrection Sunday, and it is intended to mirror the 40 days that we prepared for Easter, called Lent. And you'll remember that those 40 days of Lent uh, reenacted Jesus' time in the wilderness, found in uh, Matthew chapter 4. And it's been 40 days since we celebrated the resurrection, and in 10 more days... For us, next Sunday, we will celebrate Pentecost, that is the gift of the Holy Spirit, as Jesus foretold in the text that, I'm, that I read to you this morning. Now, in the church, when it's a secular or national holiday, like Thanksgiving, we celebrate, and, and it falls during the week, we celebrate that day the Sunday before. So Thanksgiving is always on a Thursday, and the Thanksgiving Sunday is always the Sunday before. However, when it comes to sacred holidays, like the Day of Ascension, if it falls in the middle of the week, we celebrate that the Sunday after. And so since the Day of Ascension was this past Thursday, today is Ascension Sunday. Now the text that I read to you today from the book of Acts, written by Luke, it's the traditional lesson that is oftentimes read on Ascension Sunday. But he, he, that is Luke, also includes a shorter version of the ascension in the last uh, chapter or so of his gospel. Now, we're going to look at that a little bit later. Now, when the Bible talks about the ascension and its importance, the Bible speaks about it over 40 times. And in addition to the gospels, in addition to the book of Acts, the idea of the ascension is mentioned in Paul's letter to the Romans, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, it's mentioned in 1 Peter, it's mentioned in the book of Hebrews, and it's mentioned in the book of Revelation. Now, we can see that because it is mentioned so much in the New Testament, it is an extremely important doctrine of the church. But for many Christians, it's nothing more than a passing event. Why is it important? And how does the ascension change our lives? That's what I want to talk with you just a little bit this morning about. First, the ascension exalts Jesus Christ as prophet, priest, and king. Now, we call this in the church the threefold office of Christ. And it is through all three of these offices that we receive freedom from sin and bondage, from brokenness. Now, for most of us as Christians, when we think about our relationship with sin, we think about Jesus and whatever Jesus did forgiving us of our sin. When we think about the role of Jesus, we think, well, Jesus did what he did on the cross so that my sins could be forgiven. But that's really only part of the story. 
That's not the whole of the gospel. And although it's an important dimension of that relationship, we can't forget the other aspects of the relationship that we have with God through Christ as well. That is, is that we're not only forgiven of our sin, but we're also set free from its bondage and its consequences. Now, we talk about priest, prophet, and king a lot in the church. You probably just haven't paid attention. As a matter of fact, when we talk about pastors, when pastors are ordained to the ministry, they are ordained to the role of prophet and priest. Now, now before you get upset and turn me off, you can't think about either of those two terms in light of how they're understood in other denominations or other kinds of churches. I'm speaking to you today based upon how the Bible talks about prophet and priest. Now, essentially, what a prophet does, according to the Bible, is a prophet speaks to the people on behalf of God. Now, forgive me, because I'm going to turn around. A priest speaks to God on behalf of the people. You see the difference? So what's happening right now as I'm preaching is the prophetic aspect of my ministry. I'm speaking to you on behalf of God, not some divine revelation that I got last night, but because of the Word of God. My job is to speak to the people of God, God's Word found in the Scriptures. Now, some of you might be having surgery or a medical procedure this past week. You'll go to Pastor Joe or, or one of the elders here in the church, and you'll say to them, would you pray for me as I go to this medical procedure? That's an example of the priestly ministry. That is, is that they're speaking to God on behalf of the people. And it's not just a ministry that is relegated to pastors. It's a ministry that all of us, the baptized, have as a part of the royal priesthood of believers that we're called to pray for one another. We're called to speak to God on behalf of the person who's in need. No person, however, has more than two of those offices. Only Jesus fulfills all three offices of prophet, priest, and king. And I want to share with you a little bit about those, if you'll allow me. First of all, this is actually a, it's actually a close-up of a painting called Raphael's Isaiah. It's a fresco. It's painted in 1512. And if you want to see it in real life, you can go to the Basilica of St. Augustine in Rome. The reason I picked this is because Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, is considered to be the epitome of what a true prophet looks like. Now, you've probably heard the word prophet in, in, in Christian circles or in church because we have some books in the Bible that are called the prophetic books. As a matter of fact, there's 17 prophetic books in your Old Testament. Five of them are called the major prophets. Twelve of them are called the minor prophets doesn't have anything to do with their importance. It has more to do with their length, but nevertheless. But do you know that the Old Testament actually lists more than just 17 prophets? As a matter of fact, if you read all the Old Testament, depending on how you count it, there are over, are you ready, 73 prophets, both men and women. That, that's not me, that's the Bible. Both men and women who are prophets of God. 73, at least 73 people are raised up by God to speak to God's people on the behalf of God. Now, when you and I think about prophets, you think about foretelling the future. 
somebody who knows what's going to happen. And although that is a part of some of the prophets that they foretell the future, it's not the primary thing that prophets do. I know I've said it a lot, but I hope it's because that you, when you leave here, you won't forget it. That is the primary job of, of a prophet is solely to speak to the people on behalf of God. Now, the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament, it's actually often called the gospel of the Old Testament because in the first 300 years of the church's existence, we have more sermons preached on the prophet Isaiah, from the prophet Isaiah, than we do any other book in the Old Testament. And the prophet Isaiah is the clearest example of the wholeness of the gospel. In Isaiah chapter 1, verse 4, Isaiah begins by speaking to God's people, God's words, and what he says is that we stand condemned for our transgressions. We are in a state of brokenness with God. We are in a state of rebellion with God. But thanks be to God, that's not the end of the story. Because although that's how Isaiah begins in chapter 1, in Isaiah chapter 40, perhaps some of the most glorious verses of the Bible are spoken to us. You may have heard it before. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And that double is blessings, not condemnation. That's good words. That's the gospel. That's the word of the Lord for the people of God. You see, the prophet speaks these words of God to the Hebrew nation. And the Bible not only tells us that Jesus, functioning as prophet, speaks to us God's word, but the Bible in John chapter 1, verse 1 says to us that Jesus is the word of God. That Jesus came to the world. The reason he came was because of sin. And that Jesus calls us to repentance and belief. And that because of that, we are pardoned, we are forgiven, and we are restored. This is actually a sculpture that can be found in the church of St. Mary of the Holy Rosary in Venice. It's sculpted by a guy named Giovanni Morleiter. He did these sculptures, there's three more that go with it, he did these sculptures in about the 18th century, and they are considered four of the best sculptures of what is known as the Baroque period. In addition to this sculpture, which incidentally is the sculpture of Aaron, the first high priest, the brother of Moses, he also did a sculpture of Peter, Paul, and Melchizedek. That's got to be for another sermon. Aaron is the first high priest. When Moses comes down from the mountain, he brings with him the law of God. And in that order, in that structure, Aaron has been set up as the sole mediator between God and his people. You see, it's only the high priest that can enter the holy of holies, the sanctum sanctorum. It's the innermost room in the temple that was in Jerusalem. It was the room where the Ark of the Covenant was kept with the, angels, with, with the wings of angels, cherubim, that formed what was called the mercy seat upon which the Hebrews actually believed that God sat 
when he came to dwell with his people as they worshiped. And it was only the high priest, him alone, that was allowed on one day of the year, on the Day of Atonement, to enter through this veil, this thick curtain, to sprinkle the blood upon the mercy seat so that the people of Israel would be forgiven of their sins. Perhaps more than any other book or any other incident in the uh, uh, crucifixion of Jesus Christ is a scene that is described in Matthew chapter 27, verse 51. If you're writing, if you're taking notes, you'll want to write that down because in that we read, Matthew 27, 51, we read that as Jesus breathed his last upon the cross when the earthquake came, that the veil of the temple was torn in two. And it's that veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. It was a sign, Christians have said, that through Christ's death, as as we heard this morning, as we were in our time of praise and worship, that we are now able to come boldly into the presence of God, into that sanctuary, because of what Jesus has done. At the moment Jesus died, at that moment sins were forgiven, and that veil, that curtain was torn in two. The book of Hebrews speaks of Jesus as a high priest, but also as the sacrifice. You'll want to take note of this in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 14. Perhaps the greatest summary of Jesus' role as high priest and sacrifice, the writer of Hebrews says this, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of a defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience? From dead works to serve the living God. This is an icon from the Eastern Orthodox tradition of the church. It's particularly unusual because it is called Prophet King David. It's the only time, here's another example, by the way, of lots of people can hold two of the three, but never three of the three. So just as the pastors of our church today are prophet and priests, David can be prophet and king, but not priest. Only Jesus can hold all three of those offices. Only Jesus can hold all three of those titles. And the reason David is called a prophet here is because he's pictured with a harp. That is to remind us that David is the predominant author of the book of Psalms that book of songs and poetry of your Old Testament, that book which is a part of our canon, considered inspired, considered to be God's word for God's people. That's why he's both prophet and king. When Jesus comes, he fulfills the fullness of these offices. He fulfills the fullness of prophet, priest, and king. 
But the ascension also confirms that Jesus Christ, now glorified, is available for all Christians. If you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to turn to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. Beautiful sound. Every preacher loves that sound. John chapter 20, beginning in verse 11. This is the day of the resurrection. I'm not going to read all this, but suffice it to say, you'll remember that when Mary Magdalene came to the tomb on resurrection day, she was weeping and she looked in and she saw that the body of Jesus was gone. And as she stood weeping, uh, uh, she saw a man in the garden and she supposed him to be the gardener. And she asks the gardener, she says in verse 15, Sir, if you have carried him away, that is the body of Jesus, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And in that moment when Mary heard her name from her master's lips, she recognized who he was. And the Bible says she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni which means teacher. And although the Bible doesn't say it specifically, we can assume that she then clings to him. She grabs his legs, grabs a hold of his, his, his feet or his, his knees, to which Jesus says to her, verse 17, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father. To my God and your God. I wonder what Mary was thinking. I wonder if when she saw Jesus, she thought that the one who was dead is now alive. Maybe she thought that everything as it had been would be again. As she clung unto Jesus, maybe she was of the opinion that now she could have what was so important to her back again. You know, letting go is hard to do. The command that Jesus gave to her wasn't for the faint of heart. It's hard for us to let things go, isn't it? I mean at least for those things that are important. I mean, salvation is pretty important, isn't it? The Bible says that salvation is a gift from God. But what if the Bible's wrong? Some heads perked up just then. What did he say? What if, what if we have to do something to get salvation? What if we have to do something to keep it? What if it's a gift, but we have to show ourselves worthy, and if we don't show ourselves worthy, God takes that gift back. I mean, yes, 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 yes. We surrender. We confess Jesus as Lord and Savior, but it's really hard to let go, isn't it? I mean, really hard. That's understandable. We human beings have a tough time letting things go. We can't get past our sins, can we? Perhaps the hardest person to forgive is ourselves. For those of us who are passionately committed to our professions, our businesses, our church, 
Letting go is hard. My family has had a long and distinguished career in law enforcement. Both my grandfather and my uncle were police officers. And there is an innate part of me that is always paying attention, even before I ever knew I would be with the police department. You see, I'm always the guy who walks into a restaurant, and I prefer to sit at the table where I have a clear line of vision to the door and can see all of my fellow diners. I'm the guy who, when I meet somebody, I look for bulges in their clothing, which may be a place they're concealing a weapon. I'm the kind of guy that when I get on a plane, I look at all of the other passengers and try to size up who may be a potential threat and who the air marshal is, because I want to be near the air marshal. When I meet someone for the first time, I'm the guy that looks to see if you're wearing a wedding band. If you have tattoos, are there any distinguishing marks on or about you? I'm looking at your approximate height and your approximate weight. It is exhausting to live in my head. But I'm the guy who wants a lay of the land. I want to know all of the potential threats, possible reactions to every situation. And I've, I can see myself giving this psychosis to my children. We walk out of the grocery store, and I say to them, pay attention to your surroundings. Look around. Be aware of cars. Be aware of people. Always know your, your setting. I hope they don't grow up as messed up as me. So I can tell you that the day that my training officer, Greg Sobis, and I were dispatched to a possible breaking and entering of a warehouse was the day that all of who I am, I realized, is sometimes impossible. We came to the warehouse and he told me, he said, all right, I, I'm going to take point. You cover my back. Now, let me explain to you what that means. That means that we're walking into a potentially dangerous situation, and he's leading us, and I'm walking backwards. Now, the chances that I would see anything or anybody were probably pretty remote. But just in case, it was my job to make sure that there were no doors that might be cracked open behind which somebody might be hiding or, or a shelf that might be concealing somebody. Of the two jobs, I'm, 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 I admit, Greg's was more dangerous because every inch of floor space that we crossed over had already been surveyed by Greg. And as I walked backwards, back to back against him, it dawned on me that my safety was in his hands. Now, the urge for me to turn around and look forward, the urge for me to add two eyes to his two eyes was overwhelming. But that wasn't my job. My job was to watch his hour back. I had to let go. I needed to let go. I needed for him to do his job, and I needed to do my job. One job's not more important than the other job. They're both equally important. They're just different. That's all. But it takes an incredible amount of trust to let go. 
an incredible amount of trust to let him do his job. But Greg had to trust too. He had to trust this young rookie with no experience to do my job. It's a lot like that here in the church. Pastor Joe, Pastor Drew, Debbie, Becky, Scott, Margaret, Mona, all of them. I have to trust them to do their job. And they have to trust me to do mine. Our elders, our board, our volunteers, all of the baptized, all of you, we have to let go. We have to trust each other to do the job that we've been called to do. But it's hard. And maybe our ability to do or not do those jobs, just maybe, that's an indicator of whether or not we trust that Jesus Christ is doing his job. Hmm? Is Jesus Christ really going to save me? Does he really love me? I know he preacher said he's going to lay his life down, but will he lay his life down for me? But the Bible says that we don't have to worry about messing up because our prophet, our priest, and our king has done and is doing his job so that we can do our job. Because you see, the ascension propels us to be witnesses to the world. And this is my final comment on the importance of the ascension. Now, when we think about witnesses, we generally think about courtrooms, don't we? That's where someone tells us what happened from their perspective. But here's the problem. When Luke records what Jesus said, when Jesus says in chapter 1 and verse 8, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, he actually uses the Greek word martyrion. That might sound familiar to you because we get the English word martyr from it. And so it's a perfectly appropriate transla translation to say this. And Jesus says to us, you will be my martyrs in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria. Now, this is a painting of the martyrdom of St. Lawrence. Lawrence was a Christian pastor who was martyred in the year 250-258. He is considered the patron saint of comedians. I'm going to talk about him for a little bit next week, so you'll have to come back to hear more. <laughs> but I want to talk to you about what it means to be a witness. I've shared with you the story about a friend of mine Dr. Salim Massey, who was a Pakistani Christian, who was one of the most active Christian church missionaries in a country that has little patience for Christianity. Dr. Massey, the one on the left, works hard to network Christian churches in the United States, Europe, and Australia to support the witness of Christ in Pakistan. And he started to build churches in that country. But building a church for the purpose of Christian worship is incredibly hard to do. And so Salim came up with an idea. Every single church in Pakistan also has a primary function. That is, is that they are first and foremost a vision care center. And so every church that's built is also a place that 
everyone, anyone, Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, Christian, it does not matter, can come and receive care for their eyes. And he brings in the most skilled uh, physicians in Pakistan and from around the world to provide health care to people who would otherwise not be able to get it. Now, it's also important for you to know that in Pakistan, there's a law. And the law is this, that any house of worship that is built cannot be any taller than the height of the minaret of the local mosque. Now, the minaret, a mosque is a place where the Muslims go to worship. The minaret is that tall tower thing that stands outside of of, of that building. So no church steeple can be any taller than that. And so Salim, whenever he builds a church, a vision care center, he also puts a steeple on top of that church. And on top of that steeple, he puts a cross. And that cross is just inches shorter than the minaret. And then one day, Salim realized that there was an even better idea. And so he began to build the Good Shepherd Hospital. Because it's a hospital, it's a huge building with a huge footprint. But because it's not a place of worship, it's less regulated. And so now, in the midst of the minarets, stands a place that ministers to the poor and the sick. A not-so-subtle reminder, a witness that the Jesus who came to prophetically announce the word of God, who is our high priest, has forgiven us our rebellion, and who has ascended as king of kings and has freed us from our brokenness and our bondage. And although we have celebrated 8, 10, 12 baptisms a Sunday here at South Suburban Church, by God's grace and for his glory, Salim, every week, His churches baptize literally hundreds of people every Sunday. You see, because Jesus has ascended, because Jesus, as John says in Revelation, is seated at the right hand of God the Father, you and I are not only forgiven, we are free. We are free to be witnesses. Like Selim, not having to worry about our fate. Jesus has this. He's on point. Nothing catches him by surprise. He has done, is doing, and will do his job. And he's calling us, trusting us to be his witnesses. Why? How? Because he has ascended. He is glorified, and he sits on the throne that is rightfully is, and he reigns forever and ever. Amen. God, our Father, we thank you that your Son, Jesus Christ, prophet, priest, and king, came to speak to us your word suffered himself upon the cross for the sake of our sins and now sits on the throne of glory as king forever and ever. Lord, may we leave this place fully accepting your call to martyrdom, your call to be witnesses to the glory of your name. And your church said, 